What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Guys, I'm uh, trying to wrap this book up. So this is going to be a long episode. I'm reading two chapters in a row. Or maybe more. Who knows? But we're going to read chapters 10 and 11 and uh, see how far we can get. So we're skipping over intros. We're skipping over uh, other waste of time things and getting straight to the meat of the story of Dorian Gray. So what happened in chapter 9? Basil wants to see his picture. That's it. That's all chapter 9 was about. Let's dive into the story. Chapter 10 When his servant entered, he looked at him steadfastly and wondered if he had thought appearing behind the screen. The man was quite impassive and waited for his orders. Dorian lit a cigarette and walked over to the glass and glanced into it. He could see the reflection of Victor's face perfectly. It was like a placid mask of civility. There was nothing to be afraid of there, yet he thought it best to be on his guard. Speaking very slowly, he told him to tell the housekeeper that he wanted to see her, and then to go to the frame maker and ask him to send two of his men round at once. It seemed to him that the man left the room, his eyes wandered in the direction of the screen. Or was that merely his own fancy? After a few moments, in her black silk dress with old-fashioned thread mittens, on her wrinkled hands, Mrs. Leaf bustled into the library. He asked her for the key of the schoolroom. Uh, the old schoolroom, Mr. Dorian? she exclaimed. Why, it's full of dust. I might get it arranged and put straight before you go into it. It is not fit for you to see, sir. It is not indeed. I don't want it put straight, Leaf. I only want the key. Well, sir, you will be covered with cobwebs if you go into it. Why, it hasn't been opened for nearly five years. Not since his lordship died. He winced at the mention of his grandfather. He had hateful memories of him. That does not matter, he answered. I simply want to see the place that is all. Give me the key. 
And here is the key, sir, said the old lady, going over to the contents of her bunch with tremulously uncertain hands. Here's the key. I'll have it off the bunch in a moment. But you don't think of living up there, sir, and you so comfortable here? I love that she's making a big point of, I'm going to take it off the keychain, and I'm doing it right now, <laughs> like as if it's a big, long, laborious thing. No, no, he cried petulantly. Thank you, Leaf. <laughs> that will do. <laughs> she lingered for a few moments and was gregarious over some detail of the household. He sighed and told her to manage things as she went there she thought best. She left the room, wreathed in smiles. As the door closed, Dorian put the key in his pocket and looked around the room. His eye fell on a large purple satin coverlet, heavily embroidered with gold, a splendid piece of late 17th century Venetian work that his grandfather had found in a, a covenant near Bologna. Yes, that would serve to wrap the dreadful thing in. That's another thing about this story. Everything is fantastic. <laughs> Even if you're just going to wrap a painting up in something, it's got to be the best. It had perhaps served often as a pall for the dead. Now it was to hide something that had a corruption of its own, worse than the corruption of death itself. Something that would breed horrors and yet would never die. What the worm was to the corpse, his sins would be to the painted image on the canvas. They would mar its beauty and eat away its grace. They would defile it and make it shameful. And yet the thing would still live on. It would always be alive. He shuddered, and for a moment he regretted that he had not told Basil the true reason for why he wished to hide the picture away. Basil would have helped him to resist Lord Henry's influence and the still more poisonous influences that came from his own temperament. The love that he bore him, for it really was love, had nothing in it that was not noble and intellectual. It was not that mere physical admiration of beauty that is born of the senses and that dies when the senses tire. It was such love as Michelangelo had known, and Montaigne, and Winkleman, and Shakespeare himself. Yes, Basil could have saved him, but it was too late now. The past could always be annihilated. Regret, denial, or forgetfulness could do that, but the Future was inevitable. There were passions in him that would find their terrible outlet, dreams that would make the shadow of their evil real. He took up from the couch the great purple and gold texture that was covering it, and holding it in his hands passed behind the screen. Was the face on the canvas viler than before? It seemed to him that it was unchanged, and yet his loathing of it was intensified. Gold hair, blue eyes, and rose-red lips. They all were there. It was simply the expression that it altered. That was uh, horrible in its cruelty, compared to what he saw in it, the censure or rebuke. How shallow Basil's reproaches about Sybil Vane had been. Oh, how shallow, and of what little account. His own soul was looking out at him from the canvas and calling him to judgment. A look of pain came across him and he flung the rich pall over the picture. As he did so, a knock came to the door. He passed out as the servant entered. The persons are here, monsieur. He felt that the man must be got rid of at once. He must not be allowed to know where the picture was being taken to. There was something sly about him, and he had thoughtful, treacherous eyes. Sitting down at the writing table, he scribbled a note to Lord Henry. 
asking him to send him round something to read and reminding him that they were to meet at 8.15 that evening. Wait for an answer, he said, handing it to him, and show the man in here. In two or three minutes, there was another knock, and Mr. Hubbard himself, the celebrated frame-maker of South Audley Street, came in with a somewhat, uh, rough-looking young assistant. Mr. Hubbard was a florid, red-whiskered little man, whose admiration for art was considerably tempered by the invariable impunctuosity. Hmm, okay, fine. I've been skipping over a lot, but that one I gotta look up. Impecunious. Impecunious. Having little or no money, penniless and poor. Impecunious. Impecuniosity <laughs> of most of the artists who dealt with him. As a rule, he never left his shop. He waited for people to come to him. But he always made an exception in favor of Dorian Gray. There was something about Dorian that charmed everybody. It was a pleasure even just to see him. What can I do for you, Mr. Gray, he said, rubbing his fat, freckled hands. I thought I would do myself the honor of coming around in person. (laughs) I have just got a beauty of a frame, sir. Picked it up on sale. Old Florentine came from Font Hill, I believe, admirably suited for a religious subject, Mr. Gray. Hmm. I am so sorry you have given yourself the trouble of coming around, Mr. Hubbard. I shall certainly drop in and look at that frame, though I don't go in much at present for uh, religious art. But today I only want a picture carried to the top of the house for me. It is rather heavy, so I thought I would ask you to lend me a couple of your men. Uh, no trouble at all, Mr. Gray. I'm delighted to be of any service to you. Which, uh, which is the work of art, sir? This, replied Dorian, moving the screen back. Can you move it, covering it all just as it is? I don't want it to get scratched going upstairs. Uh, there'll be no difficulty, sir, said the genial frame maker, beginning with the aid of his assistant to unhook the picture from the long brass chains by which it was suspended. And now... Uh, should we carry it to Mr. Gray? Oh, I'll show you the way, Mr. Hubbard, if you'll kindly follow me. Or perhaps <coughs> you had better go in front. I'm afraid it is right at the top of the house. We will go up by the front staircase as it is wider. He held the door open for them, and they passed out into the hall and began the ascent. The elaborate character of the frame had made the picture extremely bulky. And now and then, in spite of the obsequious protests of Mr. Hubbard, who had the true tradesman's spirit disliked seeing a gentleman doing anything useful, Dorian put his hand to it so as to help them. Something of a load to carry, sir, gasped the little man when they reached the top landing, and he wiped his shiny forehead. I'm afraid it is rather uh, heavy, murmured Dorian as he unlocked the door that opened the room that was to keep for him the curious secret of his life and hide his soul from the eyes of men. He had not entered the place for more than than four years. Not, indeed, since it had used it first as a playroom for when he was a child and when as a study as he grew somewhat older. It was a large, well-proportioned room which had been specifically built by the last Lord Kelso, for the use of the little grandson, who, for his strange likeness to his mother, and also for other reasons, had always hated and desired to keep at a distance. It appeared to Dorian to have but little changed. There was the huge Italian Casson, with its 
fantastically painted panels and its tarnished gilt moldings, in which he had so often hidden himself as a boy. There the satinwood bookcase filled with his dog-eared school books. On the wall behind it was hanging the same ragged Flemish tapestry where a faded king and queen were playing chess in a garden, while a company of hawkers rode by, carrying hooded birds on their gauntleted wrists. How well he remembered it all. Every moment of his lonely childhood came back to him as he looked round. He recalled the stainless purity of his boyish life, and it seemed horrible to him that it was there the fatal portrait was to be hidden away. How little he had thought in those dead days of all that was in store for him. There was no other place in the house so secure from prying eyes as this. He had the key, and no one else could enter it. Beneath its purple pall, a face painted on the canvas uh, could grow bestial, sodden, and unclean. What did it matter? No one could see it. He himself would not see it. Why should he watch the hideous corruption of his soul? He kept his uh, youth, and that was enough. And besides, might not his nature grow finer after all? There's no reason that the future should be so full of shame. Some love might come across his life and purify him and shield him from those sins that seemed to be already stirring in spirit and in flesh. Those curious, unpictured sins whose very mystery lent them their subtlety and their charm. Perhaps someday the cruel look will have passed away from the scarlet-sensitive mouth, and he might show to the world Basil Hallwood's masterpiece. No, that was impossible. Hour by hour, week by week, the thing upon the canvas was growing old. It might escape the hideousness of sin, but the hideousness of age was in store for it. The cheeks would become hollow or flaccid. Yellow crow's feet would creep around the fading eyes and make them horrible. The hair would lose its brightness. The mouth would gape and droop. It would be foolish or gross, as the mouths of old men are. (laughs) There would be the wrinkled throat, the cold, blue-veined hands, the twisted body that he remembered in the grandfather who had been so stern to him in boyhood. The picture had to be concealed. There was no help for it. Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please, he said wearily, turning around. I am sorry I've kept you so long. I was thinking of something else. Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray, answered the frame maker, who was still gasping for breath. Where should we put it, sir? Oh, anywhere. Here, this'll do. I don't want to have it hung up. Just lean it against the wall. Thanks. Might one look at the work of art, sir? Dorian started. It would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard, he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him and fling him to the ground if he dared lift the gorgeous hanging that would conceal the secret of his life. I shan't trouble you any more now. I am much obliged for your kindness in coming around. Uh, not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, <laughs> sir? And Mr. Hubbard tramped downstairs, followed by his assistant, who glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvelous. When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon the horrible thing. No I but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found that it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had already been brought up. 
On a little table of dark perfumed wood, thickly encrusted with nacre, nacre, <laughs> a present from Lady Radley, his guardian's wife, a pretty professional invalid who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo, was lying a note from Lord Henry, and beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges sold. A copy of the third edition of the St. James Gazette had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. He wondered if he had met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house and wormed out of them what they had been doing. He would be sure to miss the picture, had no doubt missed it already. While he had been laying the tea things, the screen had not been set back and a blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs and trying to force the door of his room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He had heard of rich men who had been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who had read a letter or overheard conversation or picked up a card with an address or found beneath the pillow a withered flower or a shred of crumpled lace. He sighed, and having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he had sent him round the evening paper and a book that might interest him, and that he would be at the club. At 8.15, he opened St. James' Uh, languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an actress. An inquest has been held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road, by Mr. Danby, the district coroner on the body of Sybil Vane, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre Holborn. A verdict of death by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed uh, for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected during the giving of her own evidence, and that of Dr. Burrell, who had made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned, and tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was, and how horribly real ugliness made things. He felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report. It was certainly stupid of him to have marked it with a red pencil. Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it and had begun to suspect something. And yet, what did it matter? What had Dorian Gray to do with Sybil Vane's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it, he wondered. He went toward the little pearl-colored octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bees that wrought in silver, and, taking up the volume, flung himself into an armchair and began to turn over the leaves. After a few minutes, he became absorbed. It was the strangest book he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that had dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him. Things which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel, without a plot, with only one character, being indeed simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian who spent his life trying to realize in the 19th century all the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own, and to sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving 
for their mere artificiality, those runications that men have unwisely called virtue. As much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin, the style in which it was written was that curious jeweled style, vivid and obscure at once, full of argot and uh, archaisms, archaisms, archaisms. I'm not looking it up of technical expressions and of elaborate paraphrases that characterizes the work of some of the finest artists of the French school of symbolists. There were, in its metaphors, as monstrous as orchids and as subtle in color, the life of the senses was described in the terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint or of the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book, the heavy odor of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music was so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad as he passed from chapter to chapter a form of reverie, a malady of dreaming, that made him unconscious of the falling day and creeping shadows. Cloudless, and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on by its wan light till he could read no more. Then, after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up and, going to the next room, placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood at the bedside and began to dress for dinner. It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room, looking very much bored. I am so sorry, Harry, he cried out, but really, it is entirely your fault. That book you sent me has fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Uh, yes, I thought you would like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There's a great difference. Ah, you have discovered that, murmured Lord Henry, and they passed into the dining room. Uh, chapter 11 For years, Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition and had them bound in different colors so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed at times to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian in whom the romantic and scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself. And indeed, the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. At one point, he was more fortunate than the novel's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life and was occasioned by the sudden decay of a bew, bow, <laughs> that had once apparently been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy, and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place. 
and he used to read the latter part of the book with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized, account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others and in the world he had most dearly valued. For the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Hallward and many others beside him seemed never to leave him. Even those who had heard the most evil things against him, and from time to time strange rumors about his mode of life crept through London and became the chatter of the clubs, could not believe anything to his dishonor when they saw him. He had always looked of one who had kept himself unspotted from the world. Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them a memory of the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences <laughs> that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends or thought that they were so too, he himself would creep upstairs to the locked room and open the door with the key that never left him now and stand with a mirror in front of the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him. Looking now at the evil and aging face on the canvas and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamored of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and sometimes with a monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth. Wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands beside the coarse, bloated hands of the picture and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the falling limbs. There were moments, indeed, at night, when lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber, or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks, which, under an assumed name and in disguise, it was his habit to frequent. He would think upon the ruin he had brought upon his soul with a pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. But moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life, which Lord Henry had first stirred in him as they sat together in the garden of their friend, seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. Yet he was not really reckless at any rate in his relations to society, once or twice every month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening, while the season lasted, he would throw open to the world his beautiful house and have the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners, in the settling of which Lord Henry always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited as for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table with its subtle symphonic symphonic <laughs> arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths and antique plate of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men who saw or fancied that they saw in Dorian Gray the true realization of a type which they had often dreamed in Ecton or Oxford days. 
a type that was to combine something of the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. That was a really long paragraph with no periods. To them he seemed to be of the company of those whom Dante describes as having sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. By Gautier, he was one for whom the visible world existed. And certainly to him, life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts, and for all the other arts seemed to be but a preparation. Fashion, uh, by which what is really fantastic becomes for a moment universal, the dandyism, which in its own way is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of a beauty, and had, of course, their fascination from he, his mode of dressing and the particular styles that from time to time he affected had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair Balls and Paul Mall Club windows, who copied him in everything he did and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, uh, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For a while, he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found indeed a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become the London of his own day, what to imperial Neronian Rome the author of the Satyricon <laughs> once had been. Yet, in his inmost heart, he desired to be something more than a mere arbiter eleganturium, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel or the knotting of a necktie or the conduct of a cane. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles, and find in the spiritualizing of its senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried. Men, feeling a natural instinct of terror without passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves, and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence, but it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood, and that they had remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission or to kill them by pain, instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. I'm getting deflated again. He's doing that thing where he's kind of writing his personal philosophy in. He was describing Dorian Gray for a while, but now it's just blech. As you look back upon the man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss so much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad, willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than he fancied, degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape. Nature, you can tell he's rambling on with his own personal philosophy when he doesn't use periods. <laughs> it's just paragraph after paragraph. It's nothing but commas. In her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, colon, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life and to save it from that harsh, uncomely puritanism that is having in, in our own day its curious revival, period. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly, yet it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. 
Its aim, indeed, was to be experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they might be, of the asceticism that deadens the senses as the vulgar uh, profligacy <laughs> that dulls them. I'm just not even trying to pronounce words anymore. It was to know nothing, but it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamored of death, or one of those nights of horror that and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, and indistinct with the vivid life that lurks in all grotesqueness and that lends the Gothic art and its enduring vitality, this art being, the one that might fancy, especially the art of those whose minds might have been troubled with the malady of reverie, gradually white fingers creep through the curtains and they appear to tremble. In black fantastic shapes, dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there outside there in the stirring of the birds among the leaves and the sound of men going forth at their work or the high sob of the wind coming down from the hills and wandering around the silent houses, though it feared to awake of the sleepers yet must needs call forth sleep from the purple cave. Veil after veil of thin, dusky gauze is lifted and by degrees forms and colors of the things are restored to them and we watch the drawn remaking of the world and the antique pattern the man the wan mirrors get back to their mimic of life the flameless tapers stand where they had left them and beside them lies the half cut book oh my god I'm going insane so much description I don't even exactly know what his point is yet and he's just really flowering this up uh, wired flower that we had worn at the ball and the letter that we had been afraid to read and that we had often... Uh, nothing seems to have changed. Out of the unreal shadows, the night comes back to the real life that we had known and we have to resume that we left off and there steals us the terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits or of a wild longing as it might be that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that has been refashioned anew in the darkness for our pleasure, a world which things would have fresh shapes and colors that would be changed and have other secrets, a world in which past would have little or no place or survive at any rate and no conscious form obligation to regret the remembrance you enjoy of having its bitterness and its memories of pleasure and pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object. Or amongst the true objects of life and in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful. The possesses the element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew uh, to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having, as it were, caught their color and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with their curious indifference that is not incompatible with the real ardor of temperament, and that, indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumored of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always a great attraction for him. The daily sacrifice, more awful reality than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses and by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolize. He loved to kneel down on the old, cold marble pavement and watch the priest in his stiff, flowered, dalmatic, slowly uh, with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle or raising aloft the jeweled, lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer that at times one would fain think is indeed 
the Panis Calatus, <laughs> the bread of angels, or robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into a chalice and smiting his breast for his sins. The fuming censers that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out, he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals and long to sit in the dim shadow of one of them and listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating the true story of their lives. But he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system or of mistaking for a house in which to live and in that is but suitable for a sojourn of the night. But for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail, mysticism, with its marvelous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antonomism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season. And for a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinianist movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in uh, tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical conditions, morbid or healthy, normal or deceased. Yet, as has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared to the life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, have their spiritual mysteries to reveal. And so he would now study perfumes and their secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily scented oils and burning odorous gums from the east. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life, and set himself to discover their true relations. Wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, and in ambrosias that stirred one's passions, and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in chimpac that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes, and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots and scented pollen-laden flowers, of automatic oh, aroma aromatic <laughs> balms, and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of hovnia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul, which we know now is not true. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, in a long latticed room with a vermilion and gold ceiling, the walls of olive green lacquer. He used to give curious concerts in which mad gypsies tore wild music from little zethers or gave yellow shawled Tunisians plucked at the strange strings of monstrous lutes while grinning N-word beat uh, monotonously upon copper drums and, crouching upon scarlet mats, slim turbaned Indians blew through long pipes of reed or brass and charmed, or feigned a charm, great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals 
and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace and Chopin's beautiful sorrows and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded on his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found, either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage tribes that have survived contact with the Western civilizations. He loved to touch and try them. He had the mysterious Juruparis of the Rio and Word Indians uh, that women are not allowed to look at and that even youths they still not see till they have been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds and flutes of human bones such as the Alfonso de Orvel heard in Chile, and the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cusco, and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds mm, filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken, the long clarion of the Mexicans, into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air, the harsh tour of the Amazonian tribes that is sounded by the sentinels, who sit still day long in high trees and can be heard, it is said, at the distance of the three leagues, the tetapanazolatol, that has two vibrating tongues of wood and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants, the yodel bells of the Aztecs that are hung in clusters like grapes with a huge cylindrical drum uh, covered with the skins of great serpents, like the one uh, that Barnell Diaz saw when he went uh, with Cortez into the Mexican temple and of whose delightful sound he left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him. And he felt curious. Uh, delight in the thought of that art. Like nature has her monsters, things of bestial shape with the hideous voices. Yet, after some time, he wearied of them and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to the Tannhauser and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On the occasion, he took up the study of jewels and, and appeared at a costume ball as Andy Juice, Admiral of France, in a dress covered with 560 pearls. This taste enthralled him for years, and indeed may be said to never have left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling, in their cases, the various stones that had been collected, such as the olive green Chrysler Sobel that turns red by lamplight and the cry on my face. So we're just going to start listing it. Every time he takes up a hobby, we have to read a huge long list of every example of that hobby with its wire-like line of silver and the pistachio colored perdot, the rose pink and wine yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet and the tremendous four rayed stars, flame red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spirals and amethysts with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone and of the moonstone's pearly whiteness and of the broken rainbow and the milky opal. It's like he's just trying to show off how much he knows in this book. From Amsterdam, three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of color and had a turquoise de la ville roche that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories also about jewels. In Alfonso's clericalis disciplinia, a serpent was mentioned with the eyes of real Jacinth, 
and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Amethia, was said to have found a veil of Jordan snakes with collars of real emeralds glowing in their backs. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibition of the golden letters and a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist, Pierre de Boniface, Boniface, whatever, the diamond rendered the man invisible. And the agate of India made him eloquent. The Cornelian appeased anger, and the Hathians provoked sleep, and the Amethyst drove away the fumes of wine, the garnet cast out demons, and the Hydropubis deprived the moon of a color. This is such a tedious chapter. <laughs> the Selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the Malochius with the discoveries of thieves, and to be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Canlis had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad, and there was a certain antidote against poison. The bezoar was found in the heart of the Arabian deer. It was a charm that could cure the plague. Its nests of Arabian birds was the Apelius, and according to Demetrius, he kept the wearer from any danger of fire. The king of Ceylon, this is a new chapter, rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand. As the ceremony of his coronation, the gates of the palace of John and the priests were made of Sardis, with the horn of the horned snake inwrought, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which there were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day and the carbuncles by night. It lodges strange romances, a Marguerite of America. It was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chaste ladies of the world, enchased out of silver, uh, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds. Marco Polo had seen the inhabitants of Zipangu place rose-colored pearls in the mouths of the dead. A sea monster had been enamored of the pearl that the diver brought to the king Perozes that had slain the thief and mourned for seven moons over its loss. When the Huns lured the king into the great pit, he flung it away. Procuperus tells this story, nor was it ever found again, though the emperor and Senatus offered 500 weight of gold pieces for it. The king of Malabar had shown the certain Venetian rosary 304 pearls of every god ever worshipped. Oh, my God. When the Duke of Valentus, son of Alexander VI, visited Louis XII of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves, according to... Oh, my God. <laughs> Camp of double rolls of rubies throughout the great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups, hung with 421 diamonds. Richard II had a coat valued at 30,000 marks, which was covered with ballast rubies. Hall described Henry the... Eighth, on his way to the tower previous to his coronation, wearing a jacket of raised gold, a placard embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great bodder like about his neck of large ballasses. The favorites of James I wore earrings of emeralds set in gold filigrane. Edward II gave to Piers Gavison a suit of red gold armor. I'm dying, studded with jacquins, a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones, and a skull cap persimmon with pearls. Henry II wore jeweled gloves reaching to the elbow, and he had a hawk glove sewn with 12 rubies and 52 great orients. The ducal hat of Charles the Rash and the last Duke of Burgundy of his race was hung with the pear-shaped pearls and studded sapphires. How exquisite, new paragraph, life had once been. How gorgeous in its pomp and decoration. Even to read the luxury of the dead was wonderful. And it truly was for me to read that. 
Then he turned his attention to embroideries and to the tapestries that, oh my God, no, the office, the frescoes, the children's, and the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, he always had an extraordinary faculty for becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up. He was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on the beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times. The nights of horror repeated the story of their shame, and he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things. Where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-colored robe of which the gods fought against the giants uh, that had been worked by uh, brown girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge uh, valerium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome that titan sail of purple on which the represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white gilt-reined steeds. He longed to see the curious table napkins wrought for the priest of the sun. Oh, my God, he's listing stuff off again. I thought we just got out of this. At which there displayed the dainties and the vandies that could be wanted for a feast, the mortuary cloth of King Chalipric with its 300 golden bees, the fantastic robes that exist. It's, I swear he's writing this because he thinks it's funny that people have to sit and read it. <sighs> Bishop of Pontius and were figure with the lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forest rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature, and the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame Judah, <sighs> musical accompaniment of the words, being wrought in gold thread, each note is shared. He read the room was prepared at the Palace of Rheims, the use of the Queen of Jordan. Oh my God. I'm just skipping over this stuff. Had a morning bed made of black velvet. He's just listing off cool stuff that other people had. Jeweled medallions taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna and a standard of Mohammed had stood beneath the tremendous gilt of his canopy. New... Ch uh, uh, new... Uh, Paragraph. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work. Getting the dainty Delhi muslins, finely wrought with gold threaded playments, oh, don't do it again, and stitched over the iridescent beetles' wings, the Dhaka gauzes that from their transparency were known in the East as woven air, and the running water and evening dew, strange figure cloths from Java, elaborate. Oh, he's doing it again! <laughs> God! And wrought from the fleur de lis, birds and images, veils from lacus, Sicilian brocades, stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with his gilt coins, the Japanese, whatever, with his green tone. He's doing it again. Okay, new paragraph. He had a special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments. Oh no! <laughs> As indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chest that lined the west gallery of his house, he stored away many rare and beautiful specimens that was really the raiment of the bride of Christ. Who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen? That she, I am like scared to get into this paragraph. She may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranates and six-petaled floral blossoms, beyond which, on either side of the pineapple... Device wrought in seed pearls. The offerings were divided into panels representing scenes of the life of the Virgin and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in colored silks upon the hood. 
This was Italian work of the 15th century. Another cope was of green velvet. Oh my God, he's definitely doing it again. Now he's, he's going to take every topic and then start listing off cool things. Start of medallions. St. Sebastian had chobbles too. Amber colored silk. Yellow silk and a mask. Crucifixion of Christ embroidered with lions and peacocks. Ugh, I'm dying. Mystic offices. Okay, a new paragraph. For these treasures... And everything, I am so nervous that the next paragraph is just going to be another laundry list of stuff that he collected in his lovely house were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape. For a season from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great uh, to be born. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life. Okay, we're back to the story again. And in front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks, he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing, and get back his light heart, his wondrous joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. Then, suddenly, some night he would creep out of the house, go down to a dreadful places near blue gate fields and stay there day after day until he was driven away. On his return, he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled at other times with that pride of individualism that is half the fascination of sin and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that he had to bear the burden that should be his own. After a few years, he could not endure to be long out of England and gave up the villa that he had shared at Treville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white-walled-in house at Algiers, where they had more than once spent a winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to the room, in spite of the elaborate bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that uh, this would tell them nothing, it was true that the portrait was still preserved under all the foulness and ugliness of his face, its marked likeness to himself, but what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What is it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes, when he was down on his great house in Nottingshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank who were his chief companions and astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendor of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with and that the picture was still there. What if it would be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For a while he fancied, or fascinated, many... There were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club, which his birth and societal position fully entitled him to become a member. And it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories had become current about him after he had passed his 25th year. It was rumored that he had seen brawling with foreign sailors uh, in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and 
When he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold, searching eyes, as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights, he, of course, took no notice, and in the opinion of most people, his frank, debonair manner, his charming, boyish smile, and his infinite grace of that wonderful youth that seemed never to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calamities, 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 well, whatever, it's not spelt like calamities, for they so teemed them, they were circulated about him, it was remarked, however, that some who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time to shun him. Women who had wildly adored him for his sake and braved all social censure to set convention at defiance, they were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror as if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilized society at least, is never ready to believe anything to the determent of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals, and in its opinion the highest respectability is of much less value than that of possession of a good chef. And after all, it is poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees. As Lord Henry remarked once in a discussion on the subject, uh, that there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view, for the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of ceremony as well as its unreality and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that makes such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations. Oh no, we're doing this again, aren't we? And a complex, multiformed creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion. And whose very flesh was tainted at the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt, cold picture gallery of his country house and look at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James. As one who caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company, was it young Herbert's life that sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body until it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly and almost without cause give utterance in Basil Harwood's studio to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jeweled surcoat, and gilt-edged ruff and waistbands, stood Sir Anthony Sherard. I don't know, he's going to start listing off all his family members with his silver and black armor pallet at his feet. 
What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Genovia and Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams of that dead man that had not dared to realize? Here, from the fading canvas, smiled Lazy Lady Elizabeth Derveaux in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher, and pink lash sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enameled collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? These oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What if George Willoughby... Oh, my Lord. I mean, if it wasn't that he was actually describing people, I wouldn't be reading this. How evil he looked. The face was saturnine and swarthy, and with the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni. Macaroni, yep, macaroni of the 18th century, and the friend in his youth of Lord Fars. What of the second Lord of Beckham, the compilation of the Prince Regent in the wildest days, and one of the witnesses of the secret marriage of Mrs. Furt's part? How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent prose. A passions had he bequeathed. The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. Mm -hmm. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it had all seemed. And his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips, he knew what he had gotten from her. He had got from her his beauty and his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose, bachant dress. There were vine leaves in her hair, the purple spilled from the cup she was holding. Carnations of the painting had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful in their depth and brilliancy of color. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet, one had ancestors in literature as well as one's own race. Nearer, perhaps, in type and temperament, many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life. Not as he had lived it, in fact, an act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange, terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world and made sin so marvelous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced his life, or back to that, had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter, he tells now, crowned with laurel, uh, lest lighting might strike him, lightning might strike him, he had sat as Tiberius in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus, while dwarves and peacocks strutted around him, and the flute player mocked the swinger of the censer, and as Caligula had carousd with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables and supped 
in an ivory manger with a jewel-front-lidded horse, and as Domitian (laughs) had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with ennui, that terrible tedium vitae that comes on those whom life denies nothing and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then in a litter of pearl, and oh, he's doing it again, and purple drawn by silver-shod mules, had been carried through the street of the pomegranates and the house of gold, and the men cry as Nero Caesar had been passed by, and as Elagabagus, Elagabagus, whatever, had painted his face with colors. He's going to start listing off all these Roman emperors, just like he did with all the jewels and everything else among women, and brought the moon from Carthage and given her in mystic marriage to the sun. Over and over again, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter and the two chapters immediately following, in which, as in some curious tapestries or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippio, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing. He found old Pietro Barbi, the Venetian, known as Paul II, who sought his vanity to assume the title of... This is like the longest chapter in the world, and all he's doing is just listing stuff off. I wonder if he threw this chapter in just to pad the book to get it to be big enough to, like, meet some sort of criteria. Valued at 200,000 florins was brought at the price of terrible sin. Guy and Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia, on his white horse, with his fratricide riding beside him, and of the mantle stained with the blood of Parado. Piero Riano, the young cardinal archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtius IV, whose beauty was equaled only by his debauchery, and who received Ligoria Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that might serve as the feast of Ganymede Hillis, Elysian, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have had for red wine, the son of the friend, uh, fiend, sorry, as was reported, and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him in his own soul, Gimbiasta Sibo, who in mockery took the name of innocent and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor, Sigelmonsto Malista, the lover of Isiota, the lord of Remini, whose effigy was burned at Rome at the enemy of God and man, who strangled Polyus with a napkin and gave poison to Genevieve in a cup of emerald, and in honor of a shameful passion built a pagan church for Christian worship, Charles the Sixth, who had so wildly adored his brother. Oh my God, I'm going insane. This chapter will never end. Warn him of his insanity that was coming to him, and who his brain had sickened and grown strange. He could only be soothed by saccharine cards painted at the images of love and death and madness. And in his trim jerkin and jeweled cap, did I do something? Like, is, did the ghost of this author come down to just punish me? Uh, comeliness such as that he would lie in a yellow piazza that hated him and could neither weep, and Atlanta would curse him with a new paragraph. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them all at night, and they troubled his imagination. In the day, the Renaissance grew a strange manners of poisoning. 
Oh, no, don't start listing off poisons. Poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove, a jeweled fan, by a gilded pomander and of an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful. Oh, my God, thank God that chapter's done. Well, what did we learn here today? That Oscar Wilde can be pretty good at writing and can also really suck at writing. When I read this book 10 years ago, I don't remember having to plow through an entire chapter of just listing off examples of stuff. He picks a topic, he lists off every single example he can find on it. Maybe... I didn't, 10 years ago, I didn't have the extra braggy edition of Dorian Gray. Maybe I don't have the edited version. Maybe this is the non-edited version that people said, this is horrible, you should edit that. So, I would like to personally apologize for this episode, uh, and hope that doesn't deter you from tuning in next time, as we continue on with chapters 12 through whatever I can get through of The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, there's 20 chapters total of this thing. Yeah, I say. I don't have to read anything before I record. It'll be fun to do it on the fly. And now look at me. I'm exhausted. And fussed. <laughs>